I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Expanded access, a means by which physicians and patients can obtain experimental drugs outside of a clinical trial, has been an area of growing interest among rare disease patients. Jess Rayborn, co-founder and managing director of Wide Trial, in a new white paper addresses some common misconceptions about expanded access and argues for the need for a new model that aligns charitable, scientific, and medical interest for wider patient engagement. We spoke to Rayborn about the evolution of the concept of expanded access, why commercial viability and not the FDA has been the biggest obstacle, and how public-private partnerships can greatly expand their use. Jess, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We're going to talk about your organization-wide trial, your recent white paper on expanded access programs, and What can be done to create greater access to experimental drugs to patients who have little alternatives and great need? Let's start with expanded access itself, though. What does expanded access mean? Expanded access is a route for patients in serious and life-threatening diseases to explore some of the investigational drugs that are being developed right now, the times that they're needed while those drugs are in clinical trials, without necessarily having to participate in the clinical trials. A lot of patients don't meet the enrollment criteria for a particular research study, or they're not in a region that is served by a clinical trial network. And we think there's an opportunity to engage a much broader set of patients than that are engaged in traditional clinical trials. So FDA created a a channel for this. It's called Expanded Access. And these are FDA-authorized clinical trials, basically for people who can't get into research trials of the uh, of the same drug. There seems to be a perception that the barrier patients face here is the FDA, but you say that's wrong, that the barrier has been the issue of commercial viability. Can, can you explain? That's right. If, if we stop and think about the factors that determine whether or not patients are going to be able to explore a drug. And when we, say, when we say patients, we have to also say physicians. A lot of times we've got doctors who'd like to be able to offer their patients something when those patients can't get into a, a traditional trial. So it might be easy to sit back and think that FDA has some kind of a storage locker of these drugs that are in trials, and you just ask them, or we can change policy and have the FDA release these quantities of of study drug. And that's that's not just false, but it, it fundamentally uh, ignores the real factors, which really come back to the drug company. What are the things that enable a drug company to manufacture a batch of drugs, to engage patients um, with a product that is not yet fully understood, doesn't have complete clinical data on safety and efficacy, and um, and frankly, can possibly distract the drug company from its first job, which is bringing that drug all the way to market. 
All of these considerations are made in the executive team of a particular drug company. Yes, there is a FDA oversight of that process, but what we find in the public discussion these days, and unfortunately in a lot of publications, is a narrative that's that's quite focused on FDA and has led to initiatives we've seen in the public relating to um, uh, new laws or new uh, new efforts to make this this FDA part of the process uh, different. You also say there's a perception that expanded access trials always work against swift drug development. Why is there that perception and what's the reality? Well, right. There are a number of perceptions in this area, and we find that those people who were working for intelligently designed access trials to to engage patients in a really responsible way are kind of caught in the middle between uninformed narratives on both sides. We've mentioned one, this concept that uh, it's, it's FDA constituting a barrier to the needs of, of patients who, who need to explore every, every possible treatment that they can, which we're very sympathetic to. And then on the other side, there's a very conservative, very old-fashioned narrative that um, suggests that not only is there a possibility of access trials or compassionate use impairing the prospects for a drug to be swiftly developed and brought to market, it goes a little further than saying that there's a risk and, and seems to suggest that it's always going to happen. And you see this manifested in language that proposes a balance between the needs of future patients, generations downstream that would be impaired or would be neglected if we were to engage in access programs which benefit patients now. And so there's this big ethical dilemma that is proposed, which I, I and a lot of others think is a false choice. Uh, you can certainly have both. In fact, if you look at the history of expanded access for the last 30 years, it would be extraordinarily hard to find any documented case where an expanded access program materially changed the prospects for the drug's ultimate approval. One of the things that I think that's fueled these misperceptions is the fact that the the press has often dealt with this issue in the context of a, an individual patient who's dying, who, who doesn't have a lot of choices right now and is trying to get access to an experimental drug that they believe is their last hope that, that might actually save their lives. I'm wondering how these types of stories have shaped the public perception of these issues. Well, that's a, that's a great point. <clears throat> Single patient expanded access is, is a very tractable story for the very reason that patients are 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 real. These are these are real people who are fighting for their lives and who really are done a disservice when they're told that medical technology that exists right now is not available to them. So at a, at a very core human level, it's, it's absolutely correct that we need to do more, and there ought to be ways for patients and doctors to make a decision at that level about which medical choices are right for the particular patient, especially in a subset of of compounds that have already shown a reasonable degree of safety and some signal of efficacy. 
So then, as you mentioned, it comes down to what's the right channel. And we have two channels. We have to go back a little bit. In expanded access, we have this classic group-level expanded access trial. It's in many ways just like the traditional clinical trial that we're all familiar with, top-down, sponsored by a drug company or a third party. Patients go to the clinic, and if they can get into a particular kind of a trial, they, they sign the informed consent papers and they're enrolled. Um, and then there's this bottom-up channel called single patient or individual IND, um, individual expanded access. And that's very popular these days because you can think of that as the one lever that patients can pull. Uh, a patient can't on their own initiate a group-level expanded access trial very easily. That's really organized by uh, a drug company or a, or a disease foundation in some kind of a partnership. But they can ask for a, a compassionate use exemption, single patient IND, and, and there's a lot of interest in that. So what we've seen is, is human stories um, told in publications, goes to the drug company, and most often the drug company says, sorry, we can't do it. And, and that's when the real story begins. Why isn't the, these patients can't be accommodated? And if you look at the factors, like we mentioned earlier, the factors that determine whether or not access for a meaningful number of patients is feasible, many of these cases belong in, in the group setting. If you have a disease that impacts more than just a handful of people, then it's not one or two or, or even 50 or 60 patients who need access, the numbers are in the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. So here's the dilemma. Uh, if you have a product that you're developing for a particular disease and there are, uh, let's say, tens of thousands of patients who don't meet the enrollment criteria of your research trials, what are you going to do? Are you going to accommodate two or three patients through this through this case-by-case single patient channel, or are there better ways, ways that you can plan for, ways that are less selective and bring about suspicions of favoritism, and and that channel is the group expanded access channel. So that's what we like to talk more about. Um, I think there's a real perception out there, or let's just say a, a misunderstanding of expanded access where we use language that sort of conflates single patient case-by-case expanded access with the traditional group trial expanded access. And that's a problem because a lot of the, a lot of the inefficiencies or pragmatic problems of this single patient expanded access are used as maybe a straw man for all of expanded access as a whole. There was some hullabaloo in, in May when the FDA issued guidance on expanded access, but you say that was much ado about nothing, that it was really just clarifying existing rules. How has the notion and regulations around FDA authorized expanded access evolved? Well, this this began back in the late 1950s with the thalidomide disaster, which really brought about the modern era of drug regulation in the United States. In 1962, we have the PFAR for Harris Amendments to the Food and Drug Act, and these amendments required not only substantial evidence of safety 
of a new product before it could be approved for marketing, but also efficacy. And with these requirements came a prohibition of patients to be provided experimental drugs that had not yet achieved this this marketing approval uh, outside of an approved IND. So an IND is called a, uh, it's really a, a investigational new drug. And you have to have this investigational new drug filing before any pre-approval use of, of a pharmaceutical product. And very quickly, it was recognized as a one-size-fits-all problem. I'm sorry, a one-size-fits-all uh, solution where that might work fine if you have uh, eczema or psoriasis or, or a common cold, but it doesn't work fine if you have a mysterious tropical disease or you have cancer or something that is not, um, is not readily solved and uh, you have a little bit more of an emergency requirement for new treatments. So very quickly in the late 1960s, early 70s, you started seeing these negotiated exemptions. And these continued until the late 80s and 90s, where we had a pandemic that really required something uh, to be streamlined. And that, of course, was the AIDS crisis. And in 1987, we saw the first expanded access regulation promulgated into the code. And that's that's the origin of expanded access from a, a regulatory perspective. But but really, it's something more fundamental. It's the recognition of of modern, humane regulatory structures that you're not going to be able to accommodate all the stakeholders with this this traditional and sometimes very long-lasting clinical development process. And so maybe there's an intelligent way to engage some patients and acknowledge that there's some crossover here between research and treatment access. Wide Trial began as the ALS Emergency Treatment Fund in 2012. How has your mission evolved from there? Well, we've gotten more and more visibility. I'd say that that's probably the, uh, the, the most important mission is to make people aware of the, the real factors of expanded access, people outside industry, and maybe even people in industry who don't recognize the options from a regulatory standpoint, that that you can put a drug into an expanded access trial without some of the perceived risks of regulatory hazard that, uh, that, that some companies have feared. Again, it's a lot, it's, it's kind of a new space in the sense that we haven't had, um, you know, a lot of these programs that often they're not visible. There were uh, it was kind of a golden age of expanded access in the uh, early 80s and, and late I'm sorry late 80s and early 90s, and then again with the first tyrosine kinase inhibitor drugs in cancer. In the last 15 years, we haven't seen it too much, and so we at at our platform, previously called ALS Emergency Treatment Fund, have been very active at expanded access conference, um, at um, individual webinars and, and workshops, trying to make all stakeholders recognize that there's a real opportunity here to do better by patients and also to improve 
medical standards of care and improve the drug development process at the same time. Well, you've developed this platform for collaboratively sponsored expanded access trials to make it easier for small companies to make investigational drugs available to patients and physicians who can't participate in research trials. But what exactly do you do? Why trial is set up to do three things. First, we partner with the disease community. And second, we partner with trial sites. That's the medical community. And third, we partner with the drug companies. So you can think of it as this box of stakeholders. And we're coordinating the structure so that Everybody has some advantage here. Everybody's needs are taken care of, where according to a lot of narratives, there's been hazards or perceived hazard in the past. So to be specific, again, we mentioned ALS. We work with the disease community through the dominant disease organizations that have an interest in this, that are hearing from their patients and from their board members that they need access to investigational treatments, or at least they need the option when working with their doctors. We work with the doctors themselves. So these are the trial sites that traditionally uh, offer a service to drug companies, but that's a commercial service because the drug companies' engagement with trial sites traditionally are to move this commercial venture forward. In other words, help them get their drug closer to approval. And traditionally, that relationship takes the form of a of a fee service relationship. Uh, we would step in and say, look, expanded access trials are a little bit different. There's a mutual value here. So in that comes an opportunity to partner where we would provide the opportunity to provide drug to patients with a protocol, with training, and we would not expect that each site charges the sponsor in the same way that it charges for a commercially funded trial. So the third step is the drug company. And when you come to a drug company as an expert provider in this particular kind of trial, and you do it in a way that costs a fraction of what they would have to pay without these relationships, it becomes a pretty desirable opportunity. And it's an opportunity to engage, like we said, it's a much broader spectrum of patients when you can include patients who don't meet the enrollment criteria of a research study or for other reasons uh, are, are too expensive or can't be collected in the data set. You can now expand it. Um, we can offer this to drug companies at a very low cost or even no cost in some circumstances. And uh, we think through that, that this lifts all boats. What role can patient advocacy groups play in this? A couple things. Patient advocacy organizations, I think here, primarily need to focus on the other corners of this triangle here that we mentioned, the, the medical sites that are offering treatment and also the drug companies. So in that, they can help spread the word that expanded access is real, it's not just a single patient request, patients aren't alone, um, that there is this opportunity to function like 
a drug company doing a trial for doing these special kinds of expanded access trials. Patient advocacy organizations can partner with us to help bring awareness of the practices of expanded access. Um, and then when it comes to actual projects, they can also partner in helping to fund these access trials. And it's a, I would say it's a great return on investment when you consider the funding programs that most of these nonprofit foundations have. Uh, it's, there, there's very little markup in any of the components here. It's not a, a big grant for commercial research. Uh, it's, it's a, we've created an incredibly lean cost structure that allows for meaningful scale of patients to be treated. So advocacy organizations can get involved in both areas. What I would say is probably less important is some of the stuff we're hearing on the Hill, um, where advocacy organizations are being asked to write a position statement on right to try laws or to lend their weight to initiatives that make the single patient form or documentation a little bit easier with FDA. That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is making it feasible, making it commercially possible for drug companies to engage in expanded access. And and the foundations can, can help us do that. There's a, there's a lot of ways that uh, we can work together. We're doing that right now. We have a partnership with one disease-specific foundation, and we're working with the other dominant disease foundations in, in diseases of life-threatening nature. You talk about the need for a more functional business model, one that aligns the charitable and scientific and medical interests for wider patient engagement. How do you envision this? Are, are public-private partnerships the answer? I think I think they are. I think you've got some traditional practices that the private sector has down very well, and you've got other social problems or, or needs that we haven't quite collectively gotten our heads around. We haven't quite figured out how to respond to a, a, a disease outbreak in a fast way that brings the newest medical technology to communities that are either at risk of, of a disease or patients who already have the disease. And I think the expanded access challenge is in that category as well. It's definitely a uh, a need that all of us in some way have a connection to. Even rare diseases aren't that rare when you add them all up and uh, count our friends and loved ones. And we realize we're all pretty close to this problem of unmet medical needs. And so when we ask ourselves, is this something that we should leave to private markets? Uh, I think it's pretty easy to see that we can do better. And it's also pretty easy to see that you've got a humanitarian need with with people outside of that shareholder executive team relationship having an immediate value here in a program that engages more patients. And perhaps we should collect that beneficiary group and try to lift the burden from the drug companies and share it with those who benefit. So that's that's really the concept of a of a nonprofit approach, where we don't think expanded access should be 
entirely a burden for drug companies, especially the small ones who have have trouble even keeping their own programs afloat. And when we talk about public-private partnerships, we've already seen FDA, for example, take a great interest in expanded access. It's just that we think that the ways in which FDA can get involved are much broader than what we've seen so far. So FDA has responded to some of the journalism and public interest in single patient access. There's funding for the FDA Expanded Access Navigator project, and that's a project for education and and identification of uh, possible candidates for compassionate use patients can go to with the, an idea for a new portal. And that's a great example of public-private partnership, and we think that there's there's opportunity here to do a public-private partnership, perhaps with FDA, in helping companies and disease foundations bring the value of expanded access or bring the value of new new medical technology to more patients. Jess Rayborn, co-founder and managing director of Wide Trial. Jess, thanks as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.